Let's get into the Word. Philippians 3, 1 to 3, the title, Rejoice, Watch Out, and Rest. Here's the big idea. The follower of Jesus is called to rejoice in the gospel, guard the gospel, and rest in the gospel. Let's talk about asking for directions. And I know for some of the men in here, that doesn't even compute. Asking for directions, that's Spanish. What does that even mean? There are some men in this room that would rather die than ask for directions. They would rather drive 100 miles in the wrong direction and then find their way back than ask for directions. Wives, raise your hand if that's your husband. There's a few of you. My mom raised her hand. (laughs) He just threw pop under the bus. Listen to this scenario. And I, listen, I'll admit, I'm the guy that will ask for directions. I don't even care. If I'm hesitant, I don't, I'll pull over. Haley's like, come on. You got this. I'm going to ask. I'm going to make sure. So imagine that you stop and ask for directions. You're, you're going on a journey. And here's what the, uh, the attendant says. And they always have an accent. Well, you can go about five miles down this road. You're going to come to a fork in the road. If you go left, you're going to drive for 100 miles in the wrong direction. You're going to hit a dead end. You have to come back. If you go right... You'll be there in 15 minutes. Which way are you going to go? You're going to go right. I've gone left. All of us have gone left. We've gone the wrong way. We're born going the wrong way. There is only one way for people to have true joy and true rest, and that is in the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ. Recall John 14, 6. What does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, In the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. There is one way. There's one way. And again, that that message does not gel well with our culture, but it's truth. There is one way. Amen? One means by which we may have true rest and joy, and it's only found in Christ. So what is God's word calling us to today? Three verses, three points. Point number one from verse one, rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel. Paul says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul begins a new section in Philippians 3.1, and yet his command to rejoice must be read in context. What he says here looks back to what he said already in his letter. In the midst of imprisonment, opposition, suffering, and now false teachers, Paul's message is clear. What is it? Rejoice in the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul uses the present tense imperative for rejoice. What is he saying? Rejoicing is not optional. He's commanding God's people to rejoice in the Lord. So we are commanded to be joyful. We are commanded to rejoice. The Greek word, to be glad. (laughs) And to do so continually. Again, what does the present tense in the Greek denote? What kind of action? It's ongoing. It's continuous. And so he is commanding God's people to continuously be joyful. Our joy as believers 
is not circumstance-based. If it was, then there could be no joy. Is true? Why? Because our circumstances are ever-changing. No, our joy is based upon something much greater than our circumstances. Something that's constant. What enables the believer to rejoice or to be glad continuously? What grounds our joy? We're going to spend more time on this in point three, but I want to take a moment to address it now. Paul uses one phrase that is hugely significant. This is Paul's fondest phrase in his letters. In Christ or in the Lord. So the phrase here, rejoice, and then what's the prepositional phrase that follows? Rejoice what? In the Lord. And that's tantamount to rejoicing in Christ. So who does Paul point us to? Who or what grounds our joy? Our constant being glad? The Lord. Paul points us to Christ. We rejoice Christians because we are in the Lord. We have been united to Christ, and what is true of Christ is now true of those who belong to Christ. And not only that, but there are rich and matchless blessings found in Christ alone. And you can read about these blessings in Ephesians 1, 3-14. And I want to just highlight a few of these. So again, the question is, why rejoice? What allows us to rejoice? What enables us to rejoice constantly in an ongoing fashion? Because as Christians, we are in the Lord. Now, why is that important that we're in the Lord? What does that mean that we're in the Lord? Maybe you're thinking, so what? Hopefully you're not thinking that. I want to look at four things that Paul highlights for us in Ephesians 1, 3-11. Verse 5, in Christ we have been predestined for adoption. So if we're in Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. No longer enemies at odds with God, but children of God. A part of the family of God. Are you thankful for that? Is that reason to rejoice, friends? Yes. Oh, but it gets better. Verse 7. In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we are rescued from sin. Amen? Is that reason to rejoice? Verse 11. In Christ we have an eternal inheritance. We have heaven. Forever union with God in glory. Is that reason to rejoice? Verse 13, in Christ we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Essentially, Paul is saying, church, rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the benefits of being in Christ. How's that going, by the way? How's that going? Do you find that you are more enamored by your circumstances or the incredible reality of the gospel? Do you spend more time thinking about your circumstances or the glories found in a relationship with Jesus Christ? How can you grow here? And maybe you would be honest and say, yeah, you know what, Chris? I am more focused on my circumstances. I'm more worried about my health, my finances, the the stability of my work. I don't think about the gospel as much as I should. So how do we grow here? When I lived in Dallas, this was a long time ago, 
my college years, when I lived in Dallas, I spent a lot of time, believe it or not, at, what do you think? At the rodeo. I rode bulls. No, I didn't. I wish I did. That would have been cool. That would be a great story. It's not. I'd go to the Museum of Art. Somebody laughed at me. <laughs> Was that Kelly Bell? <laughs> Why did I go to the Museum of Art? Man, I love art. I always have. I enjoy it. I've been to the, the Louvre in Paris. When I was there, my mom, you know, she's just kind of walking around like this, and I'm like just in awe. And I know you enjoyed it, but she wanted to see everything, and I could spend a whole day looking at one work of art. And I would often go back to the Dallas Museum of Art, laugh if you will, fine, because I, I wanted to be enamored by the beauty. I wanted to take it all in. I, I loved all the new exhibits. I was a frequent visitor to the Dallas Museum of Art. Friends, we have something infinitely more beautiful than art, and it's found in the Bible. We go to the Word time and time again to behold the matchless beauty of Christ. And in Christ there is what? There's joy. Amen? Do you want to grow in your joy? That wasn't a trick question, by the way. Well, I don't know. Maybe. No, uh, yes! I want to grow in my joy. There is more joy to be had. There is infinite amounts of joy to be had in Christ, and we behold Christ in His Word. Amen? So how can you grow here? Be in the Word. Recall Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you wish to have joy, then you must be a student of the Word of God. To rejoice in the Gospel, you must be in the Word, both on your own and with God's church. Is true? Christians, do you wish to be more sanctified? Yes. Thank you, Zach. Yes. Then immerse yourselves in the scriptures to behold the unparalleled beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As far as application, find a reading plan. Find a reading plan. I would love to help you. Feel like I don't know where to start. I know I need to be in the Word because, again, your joy is at stake here. I know I need to be in the Word, but where do I start? I have multiple plans I could give you. Call me text me, come by the church, email me, I'll, I'll send you multiple plans. If you want to go through the Bible in a year, if you want to read the Bible in two years, if you want to read just through the New Testament this year, let me know, but find a plan and commit to it. Commit to being in the Word. Why? Because our joy is at stake. Christians must be known for their joy, right? I mean, what a bummer if the church is a joyless bunch, then we're not Christians because we have every reason to be joyful. Were you listening as I rattled through Ephesians 1, 3 to 11? We looked at, what, four or five things? And remember, this is a command. This is not Paul suggesting. This is not optional. It is commanded that we be joyful in the Lord. So are you marked by joy? Again, do you find yourself 
dwelling more on your circumstances, your finances, your health? Or are you, in fact, thinking more about the gospel? That in Christ you're forgiven, in Christ you've been reconciled to a holy God. Brothers and sisters, no matter what is going on in our lives, if we are in Christ, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we have reason to rejoice. Even if your health is failing, even if your finances are dwindling, even if you are jobless, if you have trusted in Jesus, guess what? You're no longer going to hell. That's what we deserve. But if you're in Christ, guess what? You have an eternal inheritance. A pastor friend of mine often said, I love this. This is brilliant. Anything beyond forgiveness of sin is simply icing on the cake. We get the cake. We get life forever with God if we've trusted in Jesus. Anything beyond that is merely icing on the cake. The greatest blessing is the one found in the gospel, a right relationship with the God of the universe. Friends, if we have Jesus, then we have reason to rejoice. Amen? Now, before moving on to our next point, let's take a careful look at the second half of verse 1. Paul writes, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. What does that mean? To write the same things. So, obviously, Paul has talked about these things with the Philippians in the past, and he's saying, hey, this is, it's not, it's not burdensome to, to talk about this more with you. It's actually safe. What is Paul referring to here? Again, most likely he is referring to things said when present with the Philippians. The content of Philippians chapter 3, 2 to 11, contains information, material, that is familiar to the Philippians. Paul has spoken previously on the matters of false teachers, uh, specifically the Judaizers, I'll unpack what that means, the true marks of God's people, Paul's testimony, and his hope of the resurrection. That's all of chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. So Paul's talked about these things before. To repeat this information, why, why say it again, by the way? Why repeat something? Why, why do we do that? Bro, you've already said that. Maybe your kids, Dad, I know you said that already. Why do we say things over and over again? Because it's what? It's important. It needs to be heard. It mustn't be forgotten. We repeat things to the point of emphasis. So to repeat this information is not irksome or burdensome for Paul. Rather, it is in there the Philippians' best interest. Now, Paul uses a Greek word here, asphalos. Asphalos. And here's what it means. It means safeguard. It's a safeguard. By repeating what he's repeating, he's providing them with a safeguard. What's a safeguard? Steve Lawson writes, a safeguard is a protection against falling and suffering great injury. It's, it's a warning. Who's thankful for the warnings of Scripture? And when warnings are repeated, is that important? What is the Bible saying? What is God telling us? Take heed. Don't forget this. Listen up. What is one thing Paul is seeking to emphasize 
for God's people? What is he seeking to protect or safeguard God's people against? Number two, here's the second point from verse two, guard the gospel. So we rejoice in the gospel and we guard the gospel. We guard the gospel. Verse two, look out for the dogs. For some reason, I always hear Sean Connery's voice when I say that. Look out for the dogs. The dogs, yes. I don't know why, but look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Are these three different groups or the same group? What do you think? Paul must really like these people. How does he describe them? Dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. That's quite the pedigree. Here we find a situation clue. Who or what is Paul warning the Philippians against? Dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Who is Paul talking about here, and why is he using such strong language? These are the Judaizers. And if I had a piano, I'd be like, dun, dun, dun. Like the Ju- These are bad guys. These are false teachers. They were seeking to add to the gospel. They were seeking to steal converts away. Paul dealt with these guys in Galatia. Now, according to Judaizers, this is a very sophomoric, simple definition. According to Judaizers, this group, Gentile believers, so that's non-Jewish Christians, had to become Jews in order to be saved. Essentially, they would say, hey, listen, faith in Christ is good, but it's not enough. Is that true? Do we add to the gospel? Is it faith in Christ plus? May it never be. No. They had, they believed, they had, the Gentiles had to take on the yoke of the Jewish law. It was Jesus plus this and this and this. Again, they were adding to the gospel. As Christians, as God's people, we must guard the gospel. We must not only rejoice in the gospel, but we must what? We must guard the gospel. How did Paul feel about these Judaizers? Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be eternally condemned. That is strong language. Why dogs? Why does Paul call them dogs? I won't do my terrible Sean Connery impression ever again. But why does he call them dogs? Frank Thielman notes, Paul calls his opponents dogs because... Like dogs who intrude where they are not wanted, his opponents have insinuated themselves into Paul's churches. Now, when I lived in Cameroon, West Africa, dogs in that area were considered unclean and dangerous. And funny story, the the missionary family that allowed me to stay in their home, they were on furlough for six months, so I lived in their little home. They had a dog, a wild dog that they tamed and they, they raised as their own. His name was Scamp. He was ugly as sin. But the reason they kept him was because he kept away thieves. When people in Africa saw this dog, they were terrified. I would walk Scamp through the village, and people would run. And this dog was only about that big. I could pick this dog up and throw it. And you would catch it, right? We're just playing catch. But listen... The point is, they were terrified of dogs, they ran from dogs, they saw them as dirty and unclean. They were to be avoided. Church, what should we avoid? 
What should we be on guard against? False teachers. It's true. Now, what's ironic is that Jews, during the time of Jesus, often referred to Gentiles as dogs. Note the irony here. It is the Judaizers who are to be avoided, right? Paul is calling these Gentile believers to be on guard and to watch out for and to avoid these dogs, these false teachers. Next, Paul says they're wicked. He uses the Greek word kakos, which means harmful. They're harmful. These false teachers are harmful to the church. Should we entertain false teaching? Why not? It's harmful. It's harmful to the body of Christ. Lastly, he describes them as those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what does that mean? It means that they're boasting. Their boasting is not in Christ, but in the physical act of circumcision. Circumcision was a physical mark that identified Israel as God's people. However, it was never to take the place of trust in the Lord. Physical circumcision pointed to a greater work to be done in the hearts of God's people, namely the circumcision of the heart, spiritual heart surgery. And this, friends, has arrived in Christ. The fulfillment has arrived in Christ. Who's ever been invited to a birthday party? Yes. Isn't it cool? Like when you get that invite at school, you're like, oh, yes. A birthday party. There's going to be cake and games. Maybe a pool. What? Presents. Now, how strange would it be? Your best friend gives you the invite. It's on Monday, right? Get the invite. Friday's the party. Friday arrives. And you got your little girl, and she's been talking about this party all week. And you, and you go into her room, and you say, hey, sweetie, it's time to go. Are you ready? It's Jessica's birthday party. And she's like, what are you talking about, Dad? I got the invitation. And she's holding the invitation and hugging it and, and dancing. You'd be like, man, we need to go to the doctor. What is wrong with this girl? The invitation points to something greater. The day has arrived. How strange to, to hold on to the invitation. Maybe a better illustration is imagine you're going to Disney, was it World or Land? Florida's World, right? So you're driving to Disney World. We made that drive when I was 15, right, parents? And I mean, like 200 miles out, you start seeing these big billboard signs like 200 miles, Disney World, 150 miles, Disney World. Can you imagine the family's driving, you find that first sign, 200 miles, you get out, you park, you get out, park first, get out, you unpack, you set up. We've arrived. No, that, that's a sign. It's pointing to something greater. Is this making sense? What were the Judaizers doing? They were holding on to the sign. But the fulfillment had come and had come in Christ. How foolish for a little girl to hold on to the invite when the party has arrived. How foolish for a family to park at the sign instead of going all the way to Disney. Don't settle for the sign. The sign is wonderful. Praise God for the signs. But when the fulfillment has come, recognize and embrace it and rejoice in it. Amen? Now, what would these Judaizers do? What was point one? Rejoice in the gospel, right? Joy. What would the Judaizers do? They would steal 
God's people's joy. What's the point here? There is no joy outside of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want joy today? I'm asking, where is it found? In Christ alone. Why do we so easily fall prey to false gospels, I wonder? It's a much greater pandemic, right? False gospels abound. Why do we so easily fall prey to false gospels? I'll tell you why. You ready? We want glory. We want glory. We are glory stealers by nature. The Judaizers taught Jesus, pause, plus. There is no plus. It's just faith in Jesus. The plus gives grounds for personal boasting. If there's a plus, Jesus then it refers to something I can do, I can bring to the table, and therefore I can boast in what I've contributed. And we, we long for that, selfishly. We want glory. We want recognition. We want to be able to say, God, look at what I've done. You see what I did? I pulled myself up by my moral bootstraps. I deserve your forgiveness. There is no plus. Is true? There is no plus. Do you know that false teachers and false teachings are alive and well today. They are warned against throughout the scriptures. And the main component, the main component of false teaching is that it adds to the means of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul says, look out! Blepo. We heard that word last week. And he uses this word, look out, in the present tense, which again, okay, <laughs> friends, not only must we rejoice constantly, but we must look out constantly. This word blepo here means to be aware of. It denotes being prepared to respond appropriately to a dangerous situation. Paul's saying there's danger and if there's danger, if there's imminent danger, what's the appropriate response? Sitting back, picking your nose? No, what? Be on guard. Be ready. We're to be constantly prepared and on guard. Okay, question. How can we be on guard against false gospels? How do we grow in our joy? Being in the Word. How do we be on guard against false gospels? Same answer. Be in the, be in the Word, right? We must be in the Word. Oh, man, John 10. I love John. I love John's gospel. John 10 is money. What does Jesus say? Of course, I'm the good shepherd, but what does he say regarding the sheep? The sheep know my what? They know my voice. Oh. Now, listen. I know my kids' voices. If we put all our kids in a room, and my kids are yelling, and your kids are yelling, I promise you I can discern my kids' voices over your kids' voices, and you can do the same. Carl, you know your kids' voices, right? You know your wife's voice. If, if Kelly's at Walmart, Carl, you know right away that's Kelly, right? There could be other wives yelling for their husbands, right? We're all over looking at the guns and the ammo. But when we hear our wife's voice, 
We recognize it. Why? When we hear our kids' voices, we know them. Why? We've studied them. We've heard them every day. We're familiar with them. We've lived with them. Amen? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? What, what is the key to growing in our ability to discern God's voice? We have to be exposed to His Word. We have to be intimately familiar with His voice by getting in His Word. We must be in the Word. Church, in order to guard the gospel, we must know it. We must know the word. What have we learned so far? The key to rejoicing in the gospel is being in the word. Because again, Christ is revealed in the word. And in Christ there is joy. Second, the key <laughs> to guarding the gospel is being in the, being in the word, knowing it. I think I've shared this story before, but I thought it was so cool. This is one of those illustrations I'll never forget. There was a gal at our church in Washington. She'd worked in the banking world for a number of years. She was a teller at one point. And she was telling us about how they became familiar with counterfeit money. And again, I thought, well, obviously you've got to study all the counterfeits, right? I mean, all the false bills. I mean, that's what I would think, right? There's so many, you got to know... She goes, no, we never looked at counterfeits. They're always changing. I said, so what did you look at? We simply studied the genuine. We studied the real deal. And because we knew what the genuine looked like, we were able to spot the counterfeit. And I said, Kelly. It's a different Kelly. I said, Kelly, I'm going to preach that. She's like, Okay. <laughs> Because I, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful illustration, right? In order to recognize untruth, we must know the, the truth. And the truth is found in the Word. Oh, friends, to grow in our joy, we get in the Word. And to grow in our ability as a church to guard the gospel, we come under the Word. We get in the Word. What of our last verse and final point? Number three. What's number one? Rejoice in the gospel. Number two, guard the gospel. Number three, rest in the gospel. After the holidays, <laughs> we've hosted families. We've been busy. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, rest sounds good right now. I'm talking about spiritual rest. I'm talking about the deep rest of the soul. Who has that right now in Christ? Who can say, I'm resting in Jesus? Just me. Okay, good. Yeah. Kidding. Verse 3. Paul says, for we are the circumcision. Strange. For we are the circumcision. What is he, what is he, what are you getting at, Paul? We are the circumcision. Who's we? Next, he unpacks what this means. Who worship by the Spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's the relationship between the three points? Number one, rejoice in the gospel. Number two, guard the gospel. Number three, rest in the gospel. What, what is the relationship between these three verses? We rejoice in the Lord and watch out for false gospels and false teachers because 
we are beneficiaries of the true gospel. Amen? We have reason to rejoice. Why? Because we are beneficiaries of the true gospel. Man, we're not going to waste our time with false gospels. Why? Because we've benefited from the true gospel. We have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't boast in the flesh, but in Christ. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. How does Paul begin verse 3? We are the circumcision. This is an incredible claim. One that he applies to the Gentile believers in Philippi. Again, when you think circumcision, you think Jews, right? What does Paul mean here? Okay, so let me geek out for a second. The, the word circumcision here is what's called a metonymy. A huda what? A metonymy is a word substitution. Okay, so an example would be the crown. When people in Great Britain refer to the crown, they're referring to what? The authority, the power of the king, right? Or the queen. When we say the White House, we're talking about American administration, okay? It's a word substitution. When he says we are the circumcision, the circumcision refers to the people of God. Jews were circumcised, and it was a physical mark of their inclusion in God's people. But did being circumcised save them? Did being a Jew save them? Say it in Spanish. No. No. Circumcision, the physical mark, the physical act, was a pointer to something greater, a greater need, which was the circumcision of the the cardia, the heart, and the greater solution, right? The, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Savior. So being a Jew won't save you, and being circumcised, your ethnicity won't save you. Your religious pedigree won't save you. Recall Jesus' words to some of the Jews in John 8. Hey, listen, we're Abraham's children. No, you're, you're children of your father, the devil. Being a Jew is not going to save you. It's how you respond to who? What saves you? How you respond to who? Jesus Christ. What we find in Philippians 3.3, let me unpack this for us, is fulfillment language related to God's promise to rescue the nations. Matthew Harmon notes, when Paul claims that Gentiles, right, these are non-Jews, who were not physically circumcised, are in fact the circumcision, he is tapping into the Old Testament reality that true circumcision is that of the, of the heart, produced by the Spirit, as evidence of the new covenant taking root in the life of a person, regardless of whether they are Jewish or Gentile. What brings someone into the people of God? It's not one's ethnicity, it's their faith in Jesus. To be a part of God's family, to be a part of God's people, is to have faith in Jesus as Messiah. Friends, we have reason to rejoice. It's true. We have reason to rejoice, and we have no need to entertain false gospels because we are beneficiaries of the true gospel. What are the evidences of this? How do you know? 
It's from a movie. Sorry. What are the marks of God's people? Paul highlights three things richly steeped in Old Testament promise language. Okay, here we go. For we are the circumcision. How do we know? We are the people of God. How do we know? Number one, who worship by the Spirit of God. What is a mark that we belong to God's people? We worship by the, by the Spirit of God. Okay, so what does that mean? The Old Testament writers, so we're going back to the OT, the Old Testament writers spoke of the time of salvation, the time of God's future rescue, as a time when the Spirit of God would arrive and be active and poured out. In fact, the circumcision of the heart, the new birth, would be brought about by the, the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Michael knows this is one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. It's God's promise, I will give you a what? I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In John 4, 23, Jesus said, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In Acts 10 and 11, the Jewish Christians are forced to recognize the Gentile believers, too, as the people of God on the basis of their having received the Holy Spirit. To be a part of God's people means that we worship, we serve by the Spirit of God. We've been regenerated by the Spirit of God to trust in Jesus. Amen? And not only that, number two, and glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to glory? Everybody say, kaxomai. Man, you're Greek speakers. Kaxomai. That's like one of those words, like, what'd you say? Kaxomai? That just sounds vicious. But do you know what it means? To boast. To boast. Oh, hey, friends, as Christians, do we boast in ourselves? Do we boast in our works? No! Whose work do we boast in? Do we say, hey, look at what I did, God? You owe me? No. If, if we got what we were owed, what would we get? Hell. Forever. No, we don't boast in our flesh. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. Their boasting, their confidence is in Christ Jesus and nothing else. And here, when Paul says boasting or glorying in Christ Jesus, what does Christ mean? You know what it means? We say Jesus Christ, but it's not his last name. Christ means Messiah. Paul is unabashedly identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Savior King. The false teachers, the Judaizers, were trusting and thus boasting in the physical act of circumcision rather than the cross of Christ alone. So again, God's people, those who belong to God's family, what do we do? We boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. Before that, what do we do? We worship by the Holy Spirit. We've been regenerated by the Spirit to trust in Jesus, number three, and we put no confidence in the flesh. 
Again, the second and third marks are, are clearly related. The people of God, Christians, put no confidence in the flesh. They do not trust in the flesh for salvation, for right standing before God. What does that, that phrase, in the flesh, mean? This is an important word that Paul uses, flesh. It's the Greek word sarks. Sarks. Paul uses flesh here to refer to both the physical act of circumcision and to human weakness, human sinfulness. If our confidence is in ourselves and in what we can do, we are doomed to fail. You understand that? If your confidence before God is in you and what you've done and or are doing, doomed to fail. Everybody say, doomed to fail. You believe it? It's good. If your confidence for salvation is anchored in anyone or anything other than Christ, it is doomed to fail. I want us to take a moment to work through this litmus test. I want us to ask these three questions of ourselves. Number one, first, have you been born again by the Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus, to serve and worship the true King? Think about that. I want you to answer out loud, yes! I mean, you can, amen. But that, that is, this is the litmus test, all right? If you belong to God's people, if you're part of the circumcision, right, if you're part of God's family, then you worship by the Spirit, so the first question is, have you been born again by the Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus and to serve and worship the true king? Second, are you currently boasting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for salvation from sin and God's wrath, the wrath that our sin deserves? With this, the same idea here, are you seeking God's glory in all that you do? Right? That, that is the mark of a family member of God's family. I mean, what do we, we boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. We seek his glory in all that we do. And third, are you looking to your own works for right standing with God or the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection? You know, I asked for some new ears for Christmas. I didn't get them. So, sorry about that. If you said them, I couldn't hear you. My ears are so tiny. If you can answer yes to these three questions, then you have every reason to rest. Yes, I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm boasting in Christ and his work alone. No, I'm not looking to my own works. I'm looking to Christ and what he's done to secure for me eternal rest. Verse 3 looks back to the promise of the new covenant and the age of the Messiah. The coming of Christ has brought the Spirit who gives new birth, providing new hearts that are committed to God's Word and aimed at His glory. And not only that, but the coming of Christ has brought true rest. We can rest in Christ's work alone for salvation. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, you still with me? Let's commit to rejoicing in the gospel, 
guarding the gospel and resting in the gospel. And in order to do these things, we must be a word-centered, Christ-centered church. And the final question, what I always want to end with, is do you know the gospel? Do you know this message that brings everlasting transformation, everlasting rest, everlasting joy? You start with the bad news. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, we all deserve what? Hell. God's eternal wrath. That's the bad news. On top of that, we can do nothing to remedy our situation. We often think, ah, I'm in, a, I'm in a rut. I can get out. No, you can't. You can do nothing to solve your problem. You're dead spiritually. We, we come into this world dead spiritually. Raise your hand if you were born outside the garden. Oh, wow. Hey, tell me about it if you weren't. That's amazing. All of us, dead spiritually, objects of God's wrath. The good news, Jesus has paid our debt. Amen? He lived the life that we cannot live. What does God deserve? What do we owe God? What does he require? A perfect life. Have any of us done that? No. Who has? Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we cannot live, perfectly obeying the Father. And not only that, because we've disobeyed God, because we've sinned, what does God owe us? Punishment. Who took that punishment for us? Christ. So not only did he live the perfect life, he died the death we deserve. And then he rose again, proving that his saving work worked. And the Bible says if we trust in Jesus and turn from our sin, we are forgiven, we're brought into God's family. Amen? If you've not trusted in Jesus, I urge you, I plead with you, trust in him today. If you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus how to respond to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I'll be here after the service. Please come and see me. If you are a believer, commit today to those three things, rejoicing in the gospel, guarding the gospel, and resting in the gospel. Let's pray today. Father, we are so thankful. We are eternally grateful for the gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus, who came and lived the life that we cannot live, died the death we deserve, and rose again, proving that his saving work worked. And then ascending back to you, Father, blazing a trail back to glory for your people. Father, I pray that we as a church would be marked by joy, a constant, ongoing rejoicing in what you've done for us. I pray that our joy would be apparent that no matter what's going on in our lives, our circumstances, that we would be known for our joy because we have Christ. We have his forgiveness. We've been adopted. We have an eternal inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit. We have reason to rejoice. And Father, I pray that as a church, we would be on guard against false teaching, that we'd be so in your word, so fixated on the scriptures, so committed to the gospel that when false messages arrive, we would clearly see them, quickly see them. And Father, I pray that as a church, we would rest in the gospel, that we would never fall prey to looking to our own works for right standing, but always to the perfect work of your son, Jesus. Lastly, Father, we pray for those who are sick today, 
We pray for those who are hurting today. Minister to them by your spirit, through your word. Help us to grow as a church in our unity, in our love for Christ, in our commitment to the Great Commission. We ask all these things in the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said.